0: From PRX.
1: Stu. Stu. D. D. I. I. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio.
2: 360 with Kurt Anderson. Kurt
1: Anderson. I listen to it
3: on
2: the uh, radio
1: in my car. So don't be sniffy about. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think you're. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh gosh! Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show i had a thick canadian accent
4: where i come from in edmonton if you do that kind of stuff somebody might kick your butt
0: i grew up in a small town in consort alberta population 650 keep
5: listening
6: stay right there
4: don't go anywhere
5: stay sick we're not going to put up with it we will be putting a very big tariff on uh, lumber timber coming into this country people don't realize canada has been very rough in the united states
1: That was the leader of the free world talking about the terrible threat from our North. So before we all go crazy and start calling it Freedom Bacon, I thought this was a good moment to spend an hour taking a close look at some of the great artists from up there. Canadians are reared on our pop culture, but when it comes to Canada's artistic output, Americans can be pretty clueless. So... Let's not be part of the problem. Or, if we are, re-educate ourselves. In that spirit, I have agreed to do a Canadian cultural quiz with some of our very own resident Canadians. Can you two uh, strapping young men uh, identify yourselves and, and say what you do at WNYC where we record... Studio 360? Sean, go ahead.
3: Me go first? Okay. Uh, my name's Sean Ramisferum. I am a reporter on a show called More Perfect, so I'm like the in-house Canadian who reports on the United States Supreme Court. Yeah, and I'm Daniel Guimet. I'm the producer here at Studio 360 that replaced Sean as the resident Canadian on Studio
1: 360. And, and this is the very threat that President Trump is talking about. It's true. Our dairy, our, our lumber, and our radio producers. <laughs> All right, so we got this great quiz that I wrote.
3: It's going to be Sean versus Kurt Anderson. First question, who sings this song? <laughs> You're gonna get murdered. The Tragically Hip, that's a song called Wheat Kings, right? Oh, you killed it! That's like a, the unofficial Canadian national anthem. So we're done here, you
5: win. <laughs> Sundown in the Paris of the prairie, Wheat Kings of all. Right.
3: Question two, who said it, Keanu Reeves or Alice Monroe? The complexity of things, the things within things. Ju- <laughs> Keanu. That is incorrect. It was Alice Monroe. <laughs> <laughs> is someone keeping score? I have one and Kurt has negative one. All right. Uh, question three, which Canadian hip hop interviewer ends all his conversations with... Keep on rocking in the free world and do 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 doo doo do do his name's Nardwar, the human
1: serviette. That is correct. See, I, I mean, this is, this, is like, this is like that scene in, in Monty Python, and the, <laughs> you know, where they go trying to get across the bridge and they just suddenly ask all the hard
3: questions. Give them like a World War II question No, No, something. we're getting there, we're getting there, we're getting there. Uh, question four, back to the 70s at least. Uh, which of these ridiculously talented people were not involved in a 1972 Toronto production of Godspell? Was it Martin Short, Lorne Michaels, Eugene Levy, or Gilda Radner? Lorne
1: Michaels. Oh, you got it. That's right. I noticed I said Lorne like you're supposed to when you're in show business. Yeah. And now the last
3: question, true or false, was this guy... <laughs>
2: oh, what the rock is cooking?
3: He's was he born in Canada? <laughs> he was not, but his father is from Nova Scotia that's Dwayne Johnson that's
1: Dwayne the Rock Johnson now I knew of course I we, we the, the listeners at home don't know that my hand was there before this <laughs> young whippersnapper pushed essentially pushed it out of there and I knew he wasn't Canadian because he can run for president as he's going to do in two thousand. oh very good that's correct alright well I'm sorry Kurt but Sean is the winner what are the
3: prizes what do I get uh, you get temporary asylum in Canada if you like I don't need it he does he's really in trouble he's like the first to go
5: on walking in the free world and do 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 bow. do
2: do do
1: For my money, which is currently worth a third more than Canadian money, the singer Katie Lang is one of the great singers of American music.
2: There are three days I know
1: she has worked in a vast range of styles, from punk to pop standards with Tony Bennett.
2: That leave worries behind you. But in your dreams, whatever. Dream
1: a dream me. To one of her recent albums with the indie rock stars Nico Case and Laura Veer.
2: So and small. They don't really love
1: you. Katie Lang first came to my attention in the late 1980s as this cool alt-country hipster who owed a huge debt to Patsy Cline. About a decade ago, I spoke to her about her roots, the country music ones and the Canadian ones. I came to country
0: from a lot of different angles. I grew up in a small town in in Consort, Alberta, population 650, which was a ranching and a farming community. So I understood the mindset and the lifestyle innately. Uh But I grew up studying and listening to classical music and then I studied music in college and also was an artist, and I was involved in a group with of performance artists. So at the time when I got started in country, I was really coming from a performance artist perspective. And um, as a vocalist, it also was one of the few kinds of music where it really allowed my voice to, to open up because I think my, my voice is quite languid and... Um, Country music really was a great vehicle for, for me as a singer.
1: As you discovered that, did did your take on the, the country repertoire go from performance art, kitsch lover, to m- more sincere, gosh, this is a really good way for me to sing?
0: Yeah, that is what happened. I, I really, you know, entered it. Focusing on the sort of the funny polkas and uh-huh. all that, and then and the deeper I studied it, and the more I listened to it, the more I I realized that it was a, a wonderful way for me to explore my voice. But I think the thing about country was it was fun to play with the sort of traditions of themes that they worked on, inserting different ideas and thoughts into the traditional lyrics of country music. She
2: was a just couldn't call her small You can't bet every Saturday night She'd be heading for the Legion Hall Put her blue dress on and she'd cool her hair Oh, she'd been waiting all week With a bounce and a step and a and a walk She'd be swinging down the street You could tell she was ready by the look in her eyes She slipped into the crowd so she
1: entered the place, yeah, the big bone girl was proud. Big Bone Gal by Katie Lang from 1989. Katie, what did people in the mainstream country music world think when they first heard you and saw you?
0: I think they were a little bit frightened of me. You know, I obviously didn't look the part. I had a brush cut and cut off cowboy boots, oversized cowboy boots, and, and uh, you know, curtains from my sister's bedroom sewn into a skirt and things like that.
1: (laughs) So you weren't a girly Dolly Parton kind of country singer?
0: No, I was kind of Buddy Holly and June Carter Cash's clothes. (laughs) Uh Um, But I was somehow, I guess, engaging a new audience. So I think once they realized that I had a sincere connection to the music and Uh and I wasn't I mean, even though I infused humor into my approach, I I certainly had a great deal of respect for the, the musical form.
1: Hey, dirt originally from Angel with a Lariat. How does that sound to you now?
0: Fun. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it just, I just instantly get transported back. I had so much fun back then. I was just so kinetic, and I was so excited uh-huh. to be finally making music and finally having all my, my dreams and everything come to fruition. Um, I couldn't contain myself.
1: As you say, Kinetic is exactly right. It's so full of kind of rootsy energy.
0: You know, I think it juxtaposes the people's idea of who I am now, which is, you know, this crooner, like very serious crooner. Uh You know, I I had this other whole other side of me that that has kind of
1: been forgotten. You're two, two mints in one. You're a candy mint and a breath mint. <laughs> exactly.
0: Thanks, Kurt. I appreciate that.
1: <laughs> for, uh, for your whole career, I think from the beginning, you've been pretty upfront about your sexual orientation. When when you were a kid growing up in Alberta, were you open? Was it possible to be open about being gay?
0: Uh, yeah, I was as open as I could be. I mean, I didn't even know that there was a difference in orientation until I was in grade 11. I didn't, I didn't know what the word lesbian meant. I mean it just I just lived my life as as I did and then people pointed out to me that that, that there was a difference.
1: No, nobody pointed out that difference until you were almost done with high school.
0: Pretty much, even though I had girlfriends from the time I was 13.
1: Is that because everybody in rural Alberta is just really tolerant or reticent or or what?
0: <laughs> I just think that they were in disbelief, let's just put it that way.
1: Huh. Um back then Who were your own musical influences, if you had any?
0: Um, My own influences were people, singer-songwriters like Joni Mitchell, Kate Bush, Ricky Lee Jones. Then as I sort of got older, then sort of Peggy Lee and Carmen McRae, I moved into jazz. And then I came to country. Um, On my 21st birthday, I was actually given two Patsy Cline records because Coal Miner's daughter had come out. There seemed to be some sort of interest bubbling for country music in the gay scene, and Patsy Cline was sort of becoming this huge gay icon.
2: I fall to pieces Each time I see you again
0: When I listened to Patsy, I heard... um, so much, it was so rich and it was, like I said, I was sort of coming to country out of performance art where absurdity and the, you know, the concept of pushing the envelope is is infinite, so I really wanted something to work against, and country music was this thing that was so confining and so traditional that uh-huh. t- taking what I was experiencing then, as a teenager, like the the punk f- scene and infusing country into that and and playing with the clothes, and it just all came together when i when I listened to Patsy
1: you mentioned joni mitchell your your record hymns of the 49th parallel is entirely covers of songs by fellow Canadians like Joni Mitchell and Neil Young and Leonard Cohen. And it's it's beautiful. Do you have a sense of Canadianism that you were trying to uh, realize there?
0: Absolutely. I think because Canadians have grown up in the shadow of America, it's kind of like the difference between an older brother and a younger sister. The younger sister may be more observant and um, subtle and a little less aggressive I think also the fact that we've, we live through extraordinarily long winters have made us very introspective in our art.
1: Yeah. Well, having grown up in the middle of the Great Plains, I, I always felt like uh, I, was, I was a sort of honorary Canadian, or you Canadians were honorary Nebraskans and South Dakotans <laughs> or something. Right, right. Um, let's hear your version, speaking of Canadian heroines, of Joni Mitchell's A Case of You.
2: On the back of a cartoon coaster In the blue of a TV screen light I drew a map of Canada Oh, Canada With your face sketched on it twice I could drink a case of you. I would still be on my feet. I would still be on my
1: feet. My gosh, that's beautiful. That's Katie Lang singing A Case of You. Singing covers, or rather interpreting versions of other people's music, is that experience of doing an album entirely that way altogether different than singing your own songs?
0: Yeah, it is definitely. I think in some ways interpretive work is easier for me because the transition from sort of the emotional mire, or wherever it is that you Uh come from as a songwriter, that's a very... um, It's it's like an ominous process to come from the writer to the interpreter in, in your own music. And as an interpreter you have so much more to work with in a way because you've heard other people's versions you've lived with it you have sort of more time and more perspective to build subtext Uh around an interpretation but as a writer you're kind of in a tunnel an emotional tunnel
1: locked into the animating emotions of all these things you've written about yeah katie lang thank you very much for joining me today it was a real pleasure kurt i really appreciate it i love your show thank you The great Katie Lang. Coming up, why there are so many bong hits in Seth Rogen movies.
7: I literally view it how, like, they used to have James Bond walk into a bar and order a martini. Was there, like, at the time, people being like, why is he such a proponent of drinking? Is it weird that they keep pushing alcohol on people?
1: Yet another great American comedy actor and impresario who's actually Canadian. That's coming up in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.
5: Rolling down the street Smoking in Sipping on chin and juice Lay back! With my mind on my money And my money on my mind Rolling down the street Smoking in Sipping on chin and juice
2: Studio
5: 360 fair trade with
1: all of our trading partners and that includes canada i really think donald trump pretending to itch for a fight with canada is a stunt battle like wwe trash talking but it's still a good excuse for extending an olive branch to people who so often seem like nicer saner versions of us And one Canadian who is pretty easy to love is Seth Rogen. In his movies like Pineapple Express...
7: I witnessed a murder, okay? I saw someone murder someone else, and we gotta get the F out of here! Let's go! We need to begin to prematurely evacuate! Are you high? What? No, I'm
1: not high. And knocked up... I'm pregnant. What? I'm pregnant? With... The motion. And this is the end.
7: We got 12 bottles of water, 56 beers, two vodkas, four whiskey, six bottles of wine, tequila, Nutella, cheese, steaks, a Milky Way, and a functioning revolver from the movie Flyboys.
1: He has played variations on the lovable man child. But when he started doing stand up, he wasn't really even a man.
7: This summer, I had the honor of going to summer camp. But it was no
3: ordinary summer camp. It was Jewish camp.
7: It's a summer camp for Jews. I know you're thinking. No, it's not that bad. It's not a concentration camp. Well, there were some bad parts to it. I mean, the TVs didn't get cable all the time. And once for an entire day, our pool had no heating in it whatsoever. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that is the 13-year-old Seth Rogen.
7: Yeah. You were good. I wasn't bad. I had a thick Canadian accent. That's what I noticed more than anything when I listened to that old stuff.
1: Looking back at that now, do you think, wow, I was a I was a prodigy?
7: Honestly, looking back at it now, I think that if I met someone like that, I would hate them. And more than anything, I'm so amazed that – like I was so embraced by the other comics. They were really nice to me and they liked me. Oh, and so they, it wasn't a kids and, thing? And you, you were there with adults? No, I was in like nightclubs like doing it with actual comics and, um, and they were really cool to me. And all I think now is that if I met like a 13-year-old kid who did comedy, my – my instinct would be to greatly dislike him. And so I'm really appreciative that, that I was surrounded by people much nicer than I am.
1: Um, your first TV role came only three years after that. Although, as we'll hear, your voice had changed. then. had. Uh, in, in Judd Apatow's great high school comedy Freaks and Geeks, for which you wrote as well as in which you acted. This is a clip from your audition tape.
7: Well, I could work my ass off on a freighter like my dad <laughs> or become a farmer. I'd have some corn – Maybe some cows, all that crap.
2: The corn and cows
7: would just be there to to distract the heat from my main crop. The finest reefer the Midwest has ever grown. I'd grow it in these underground tunnels with gigantic grow lights. I've been reading up on it. If the cops are coming, you just blow a stick of dynamite at the entrance and show them your corn. It's
2: over
1: You had gotten a little surly by I then. I did. I was a little uh, aggro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and at 16, the marijuana theme was already an established trope in your comedy.
7: It's true. When you listen to that, that actually is, I think, where the idea from Pineapple Express came was, from. That was my I, next I, question. I'm it sounds not,
1: like you're envisioning Pineapple no, Express. No, I think it
7: – Judd, I think, had written that little uh, scene for the auditions and – I actually think that's where the idea came from.
1: And and when you wrote Pineapple Express, yeah. uh, is it true that studio executives actually said, are you married to the pot? thing as part of it which sounds like the ultimate studio executive it Are was yeah to,
7: yeah uh yes very much so there was no really successful movie with like weed prevalently since uh, chich and chong yeah, when and I was even a child. those movies when yeah. you look at them weren't weren't very successful pineapple express is like a somewhat successful movie and it's like exponentially the most successful weed movie ever made <laughs> like it, it, and at the time it was surprising because i was in my early 20s, and couldn't believe someone would want to make a weed action movie. But honestly, now that I'm a little older, then there's a genre. Yeah, exactly. Now, 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 now I kind of get it. It seems a little crazy.
1: Uh, at this point, it's a part of the Seth Rogen brand, I guess. And I wonder if you ever do you ever think, eh, legalization is happening. It's getting normal. Enough with this. I think that's why we
7: show it, honestly, because it is normal. I literally view it how like. They used to have James Bond walk into a bar and order a martini. I always like, was there like at the time people being like, why is he such a proponent of drinking? Is it weird that they keep pushing alcohol on people? And I think the more you casually show it as part of uh, culture, the more hopefully people will realize that it's something everyone does and it shouldn't be, yeah. you know, uh, considered like a hardcore drug. Yeah.
1: Thing. So, Freaks and Geeks, you do for a year as a teenager. You do Undeclared, another TV show for a season as a teenager. Then you're cast again by Judd Apatow in The 40-Year-Old Virgin, which becomes this big Hollywood breakout for you and everybody else in the picture. I want to play a clip from 40-Year-Old Virgin where your character is giving dating advice to Steve Carell who plays the Virgin. Listen, the problem
7: most men have is they just plain straight up have no clue how to talk to women. You just ask questions, okay? That's it, because women do not care about what you have to say at all anyway, you know? And all they want to do is talk about themselves, so you're just gonna let them do that, okay? So remember, (sighs) questions, be cool, and be kind of a Here, be David Caruso in Jade,
6: okay? Okay. I know exactly what you're talking about. I do.
1: That's good. Uh, did you have any idea? I mean, a big part in what looks like it's going to be a big movie. Did you think, oh, this is my shot. This is the brass ring. I'm going to get famous now.
7: Did not look like it was going to be a big movie. Really? Yes. That was, yeah. Like, at that time, there was not a ton of precedent for like a 20 million dollar movie with no famous people in it making a ton of money yeah. like no and as we were making it the studio didn't like it very much they shut it down 3 days into filming <laughs> because they didn't understand the how the improv was working and how it would would cut together Yeah, I mean, I, we were, we, we just wanted it to be something that we thought was funny that like hopefully would allow us to keep making movies in some capacity. I was a co-producer on the movie, so I, I learned a lot. I helped write a lot of the stuff, but like we, we by no means thought it would like be a, a really successful comedy,
1: honestly. You, you, up to that point, and in that movie, you'd acted, you'd written. Yeah. Did, you, you presumably thought, I'm basically a writer who gets parts sometimes. Until yeah. And tell that?
7: Basically, yeah. I, I, I was shocked at how, I was so psyched, because when we made the movie, it was the first time I felt like I could actually be funny in, like, the way that I'm the funniest, you know? Um, like, on TV, I always felt like I couldn't really do what I thought was hilarious. Because, and it's, then,
1: because the, the TV – Because
7: I have a much dirtier sensibility than that basically. And then I remember in 4 year Virgin, we were allowed to improvise and Judd told me to make up a story. And I tell this story to Steve about how I go to Mexico and I watch a show where a woman has sex with a horse. And um, I remember the first time I saw that in an audience full of people, it like destroyed. Like I went to a lot of movies and it got like a bigger laugh than – most jokes I had seen in like a movie recently. And I remember that was like one of the first moments where I was like, wow, like I, in movies, in dirty movies, I actually could maybe act and become successful.
1: <laughs> um, and then You Are Knocked Up and Pineapple Express and Super Bad, again, which you were involved in the creating and writing, writing with your childhood friend with yep. whom you were pals since. I guess when you were thirteen. Yeah, we uh, met in bar mitzvah class. Is, is do you think having that experience successfully with this guy with whom you still work almost twenty years later is why you're comfortable in this? Just where friends and work are seamless. If you're if you're with your
7: good friend who makes you laugh really hard, and he may, and you make him laugh, then like it just makes everything funnier, and so. Yeah, I mean, it's been a very nice realization as we've gotten older that like the more we actually enjoy working on the movies, the better they turn out. Uh cuz cause, really? cuz cause we could have we could have found out the exact opposite of that, <laughs> which yes. would be a nightmare.
1: Th- there uh, are many examples yeah, of that. Yeah, there are
7: many examples of that. But for us it's not. It's it's the the more funny we think it is as it's happening and the more we're laughing and the more we're enjoying it oh. and the better the atmosphere on set, the movies turn out better and people like them more. Um so that's good. And and
1: y- <laughs> You've sort of been part of an invention of this new genre, uh, what's called bromances with bad and 40-Year-Old Virgin and Pineapple Express. What did those movies do other than be funny and have you in them <laughs> that, that wasn't being done? What, why? Why did this at this moment suddenly do you think like become a thing people wanted to go see?
7: I don't know. I think there's a few things maybe. I think that our movies have – A lot deeper emotional stories than most comedies that play as well as our movies do, Uh, basically. (laughs) Like, very few movies that are as funny as our movies also have a heart and a story and actual characters that people have thought through their arcs and – their relationships, and I honestly think our movies are kind of like smart movies dressed up as dumb movies, and I think that a lot of movies are the opposite, are <laughs> right. dumb movies dressed up as smart movies, but then in 40 Year old Virgin, like, I was a very large proponent of adding, like, a very dirty sense of humor to it, and a lot of profanity, and a lot of swearing, because I just thought that's how people talk casually, that's how people I know talk, and I think it's, like, the combination of those things... I think movies like Superbad and Four Yield Virgin and Pineapple Express were some of the first movies to really kind of take a step back and kind of examine the emotions behind some of the traditional types of comedies that people were used to seeing basically. Which
1: is – to say, that's interesting because what you're saying is they're comedies and they're funny but they're – there's basically realism whether it's the realism of relationships, the realism of swearing, the realism yeah. of smoking weed, whatever. There's
7: like a very real relatable – to us anyway like a motion behind the yes. whole thing like yes. it, it, it it's anchored by a very realistic feeling Yeah, and I think like it, it still gets laughs it's not like the movie stops dead in its tracks for these scenes they're still just as funny as the rest of the movie but they make you feel like a little something and I think for that's sure. what seems to resonate with people
1: Seth Rogen thank you very much <laughs> thank
7: you very much
1: Seth Rogen's newest movie is with his regular collaborator James Franco. It's called The Disaster Artist. It recently premiered at South by Southwest in Austin and should be in theaters later this year. The Egyptian-Canadian designer Karim Rashid is prolific. He's got more than 3,000 designs in production including shishi items like a bowl that sells for $13,000 and completely utilitarian items like New York City manhole covers. He told us that his passion for making stuff goes back to his pre-North American childhood in the Middle East.
6: Well, you know, when I was a child, I, um, I was very quiet, believe it or not. And quite introverted. <laughs> A lot of people would find that hard to believe, I guess. And I, uh, you know, would hide under the bed, basically, and draw for six hours straight. And I loved to draw. And I, you know what I would draw, basically, is little utopias of worlds that I wanted to live in my little utopian. I'd actually draw little, you know, buildings and little architectural structures and little, I don't know, little like vehicles that would contain your entire house in them, you know, almost like RV vehicles and things. And then I started loving to draw physical things. And I remember drawing all my mom's shoes and eyeglasses in the house, the stereo in the house. When I was about five or six, we took an, uh, a ship from London to Montreal, the Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, and uh, you know that journey was, I don't know, ten days or something. And there was a drawing competition on the ship, and there were, you know, because there was a lot of people on the ship, there were about 300 children, so we all had to draw something. And, you know, most children drew things like their family or the boats or the sun and landscapes. And I drew luggage. And I drew luggage because... I was fascinated with this idea that we took our entire home and put it in a few crates and we were moving to the new land, you know, to Canada. I mean, you know, it was a really primitive drawing of kind of weird things trying to stuff, you know, the shoes go here and the clothes go here and all that. But that kind of was probably the first time I actually tried to really design something, you know. And I won the competition, by the way, (laughs) which that's the only degree I have up on my wall, really, is... (laughs) (laughs) A <laughs> little plaque uh, from when I was five. If I can make something function beautifully and really well, I can almost get away with any sort of expression. So I make sure now that if I'm doing things that are kind of, you know, a bit radical or a bit kind of, let's say, inspi- what I would call inspiring, because I think things around us need to be inspiring and give us a feeling that we're more alive, etc. they got to work really, really well. And if they work, you kind of, in a way, uh, met all the criteria, let's say, of what design is really about. A lot of times I find those simple ideas in a way the most powerful ideas and they're really about, as designers about being obviously very observant of behaviours the way we do things and you can see solutions very easily so I did a credit card for Visa and it was uh, and I put two stripes on the card so you could use the card either way So you don't, you know, and then I even realized that, but it was too expensive for them to produce, was to put four stripes, two and two. So it doesn't matter how you use a card, it will always work. You know, these are very, really simple. And and the process of design is interesting. If you do these things in a very, like, they seem obvious, but if you do them, they allow you actually to shape new form or new aesthetics or new ideas. I am so. Interested in the new in the world we live in now. You know, not only is it my field, it's my it's in my DNA. It's the way I live. You know, if I could have a microchip in my hand, which by the way FDA approved two years ago, that I can wave to open up all my doors, even my car door, I love that because I hate keys. If I could get rid of the passport and just use my iris, I would be more than happy with my fingerprint. I don't want to carry around something that that I'm afraid perpetually I'm going to lose because that adds stress to my life. I'm I'm always interested when the archetype is finally broken or or you know or terminated in a way. And we live with archetypes, you know, and we keep revisiting them over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, even something like the laptop, the notebook, computer, we've been hanging on to that archetype for 20 years. It's more or less still the the screen opens up with the keyboard in front of you. So it's amazing that this stuff just stays and stays and stays until somebody, just one person, one company, just breaks the archetype and moves us to the next level. And that's the part I'm kind of fascinated with, design. So if I had to think of objects that I love, they'd be, I guess, things that would break the archetype and really make us live in the moment in which we exist. I just did luggage this year for a company, and it's just actually going to production very soon. Most luggage right now is just a big empty volume, and you just mix everything in there. So again, I went back to this idea of compartmentalizing things, which is what I did as a child. When I travel, for example, now, I wear, like, shoes that have no shoelaces. I never wear a belt when I go through there. So I'm, I'm all prepared. So I thought about luggage that way in the same way. You know, what could just make this whole experience a little bit easier? Make an object remove stress from our lives. Because a lot of objects add stress, and we put up with it.
1: Designer Karim Rashid. Josh Rogeson and Michelle Siegel produced that story in 2011. Up next, why there are so many naked people on stage at Mac DeMarco's shows. Where I come from in Edmonton, it's kind of like if you do
4: that kind of stuff, somebody might kick your butt because, uh, you know, they think you're like a homosexual or something. So I want to annoy these people because they're like, they have pea brains inside their heads.
1: Mac DeMarco, one of my absolutely favorite Albertans, performs fully clothed right here in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Uh
5: Everyone thinks of Canada as being wonderful, and so do I. I love Canada. But they've outsmarted our politicians for many
1: years. Today in Studio 360, while President Trump pretends that Canadians are some kind of evil geniuses, We decided to revisit some of the creative Canadians who've come through Studio 360 and didn't seem at all threatening to me, but maybe that's just because they outsmarted me. Like the musician Mac DeMarco. He acts like a goofball. Everybody thinks he's a goofball, and he even describes himself as a goofball. But beneath all that is a serious talent. Mac DeMarco records and mixes and engineers most of his music himself, and the music he makes seems to keep getting better and better. Earlier this month, Mac DeMarco released a new record called This Old Dog. When he released his last record, Another one, he joined me here in Studio 360. How are you doing? Good. Cool. So looking at your discography, one would think you never put the guitar down. Are you always writing songs?
4: Um, not really. I mean, we tour a lot, probably like three quarters of the year is on tour. And I can't really do it in the van or like at the hotel or anything. Right. So But when I'm home, I'm always kind of, you know, messing around, trying to buy some weird thing off Craigslist doing my thing. But uh, yeah, on the road, it's hard.
1: So when I listen to your music, I hear some maybe singer songwriterness that reminds me of the Harry Nilsson of my youth. Cool. Um, but you have sort of created a genre for yourself, which you call jizz-jazz. Yeah, yeah. What is jizz-jazz?
4: Journalists now will say, they call your music, what do they call me? Slacker, dreamy, right. goofy, I don't know, uh, all these indie. weird things. Yeah, indie, blue wave, I don't know. So I don't know blue me, wave. I don't know, I don't understand what it means, but... uh so what I did is I made up my own term uh-huh. so that when they ask, I already confuse them, right? You know, I get the, f- the first punch in. And then, uh, so yeah, this is kind of like, it's just a rebuttal to like. So you want to pigeonhole me?
1: No, I'll um, give it to exactly, you. Exactly, yeah. Would you play some acoustic uh, jazz jazz? I could us? do it for you, yeah. Which will you play first?
4: Um, this song is called The Way You'd Love Her. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. <clears throat>
5: your heart been beating how's your skin been keeping how's the dreaming going since you came back home this time and left her out there somewhere told her how you feel but never really got your chance to show her what it really means to love her the way you'd love her The way you love to love her. The way you love her. Closer to the ending. She's still out pretending. Prying eyes won't recognize the way she feels about him. She'll just go on living. The river keeps on rolling. Knowing all the time she'll never understand Just what it means to love her The way you love her The way you love to love her The way you love her
1: All right. That was Mac DeMarco playing a very acoustic version of The Way You Love Her here live in Studio 360. Your process is interesting to me because it's all you. You record all your songs on Mm reel-to-reel after you've written them and playing all the instruments and then use that tape to teach the band how to play. Do they feel as though... They're kind of left out of the party?
4: No, because that's the thing. I mean, even if I play the drums a certain way, my drummer kind of plays like George of the Jungle, so nothing I can do about that. (laughs) And then my bass player, he doesn't really, like he's a guitarist really, but kind of self-taught, really wacky style. So I kind of let them do whatever they want. Um, And then, you know, that's kind of the thing. It's like, even though they're not part of the records, the live show is like a totally different thing, and I, Uh I let them give them microphones. They can say whatever they want. Sometimes very strange stuff. Uh, a lot of personalities in the band, so, you know, it, it works out, yeah.
1: So they're not necessarily hired for their virtuosic musicianship.
4: No, the reason that they're all playing with me is uh, when I initially signed with the record label I'm on now, which is out of New York, It's was kind of like, well, I guess I'm going to have to start touring a little bit more. And I was in Montreal, and I kind of looked around the apartment, and I was like, you guys don't have jobs. Like, do you want to go on tour? And they were like... Um yeah so uh, yeah now it's uh now they're like uh, making uh, a doctor's wage. <laughs>
1: so no wonder people call it slacker music. You're keeping it real. Yeah. You have said that your first album which was called Rock and Roll Nightclub was a joke. I'm going to play a clip from one of my favorite songs on that record called Moving Like Mike.
2: Uh-huh. Step to the
1: So the joke is slowing down your voice to sound like kind of Tom Waits is a lounge singer? or yeah, What, what was the
4: joke? Before I was trying to make this like, you know, really like heavy duty, like indie rock, like big reverb beat. And then I was, you know, I worked at a grocery store for a year and ended up listening to classic rock radio all night. And I was like, man, like. All these, like, cliches and, like, motifs they use in this music are so funny. Yeah.
2: So I decided
4: that, you know, it would be funny to do that. It wasn't messing around. Made some weird. Like, before Rock and Roll Nightclub, I thought guitar solos were so stupid. But now, oh, I love guitar solos. But, you know, crappy ones, you know?
1: Yeah. Will you play uh, the title song off this little album? I can give
4: it a a shot, yeah.
1: Okay. On piano. On piano. On our big Steinway Grand. Steinway Grand, baby.
5: Feeling so confused You don't know what to do Afraid she might not love you anymore And though she says she does And hasn't lost your trust Who could that be knocking at a door? Must be another one Must be another one she loves Must be another one Must be another one she loves Tomorrow, today She still says she's true So you start coming too Just as that old knocking comes to stay Must be another one Must be another one Must be another one
1: Must be another one she loves All right. <laughs> that was Mac DeMarco playing Another One, which is the title track from his new album. Listening to that song and seeing you play that piano, you reminded me of a guy who was over there a few years ago singing and playing Randy Newman as well. Whoa, I love Randy. You got a friend in me. There you go. There There you go. This album, in general, like that song, is full of love songs that I imagine, having read about you, you wrote for your your girlfriend? Uh, Maybe, maybe not. I think
4: it's—the idea about this album for me is, like, uh, I wanted to write some love songs. I don't know why. I had a feeling. But uh, I wrote some. And the, the thing is, with the last album, it was like, this song's about this, this song's about that. This one, it's like, you know, these are pop songs, love songs. It's not particularly about me. Perhaps yeah, yeah. it is in my own life. But yeah. you come take these songs. Everybody's in love sometimes. Maybe yeah. not. But yeah. So just do whatever you want with them. And,
1: and I don't usually ask people about their boyfriends, girlfriends. But yours plays a big role in your public life. It makes cameos in your videos and appears on stage. And she—I've even seen her in interviews you do. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a complex relationship you've got.
4: Well, yeah. I mean, I think we went into it initially where she, you know, all the stuff, uh, it's kind of like you do it and then you're know, like after it's like, oh man, like all these kids are like asking me about like, where's Kiki and stuff. It kind of drives you crazy for a bit. But, you know, then you realize like it's all baloney anyway, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Not, not the relationship, but, you know, the <laughs> yes. kids and, the, you know, the public persona. The so.
1: members of the Mac club. So, yeah. Yes. But, you know. Speaking of the kids, I have heard some fairly uh, extravagant stories of you on tour, of lots of Dudes naked and and lots of drinking and all that, do you do that because you 're twenty five and why not, or because it 's part of the persona for the fame
4: um, I think it 's just you know where I came from, my friend group, I think that you know we all like to have a good time for some reason. Uh, I think that a lot of the people that I've met and have become with in my life are, like, fairly, like, uh, they, like, don't really mind exposing themselves or, uh, you know, getting naked or, or doing strange things. But I think, especially where I come from in Edmonton, it's kind of like if you do that kind of stuff, somebody might kick your butt because, uh, you know, they think you're, like, a homosexual or something. So that mentality coming from that was always kind of like I want to annoy these people because they're, like, they have pea brains inside their heads. So I think from that, you know, it's just moved on to a global level. But yeah. It's funny, though, because I'm never the one that gets naked on the stage even though I get the reputation. It's always like, you know, a bunch of my friends that are like peeing their pants up there and stuff. But
1: Yeah. You know. It has been a pleasure, Mac DeMarco. This has been great.
4: Yeah, it's been fun.
1: Mac DeMarco's newest album, This Old Dog, is out right now. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our interim executive producer is...
0: Jocelyn Gonzalez
1: Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is Louie Mitchell Our producers are The Canadian Daniel Guimet As well as The U.S. Citizens Sam Kim
2: Skylar Swenson
1: Tommy Bazarian
2: Zoe Saunders
1: And our global citizen intern is Max Gibson I'm Kurt Anderson Cool Thank you very much for listening Cool R.I. Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, the co-creator of Master of None tells me about one of the show's new storylines.
5: When's the last time you saw the love life of
3: a 70-year-old retired Asian-American guy, you know, depicted in a TV show? So often. It's such a cliche.
1: Alan Yang uncovering new territory with the show's star, Aziz Ansari. That's next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.